Welcome everyone to People's Church. We are so glad you have chosen to join us as we worship the Lord and fellowship together. The house of the Lord is a special place to be, and whether you're joining us online or in person, you are at the right place. You may have heard people refer to the church congregation as the body of Christ, and this is because the Bible explains that we are all individual parts of the body of Christ. We hope that you enjoy today's service and that you may live here encouraged and changed. Let us get into a time of worship. Yielded, forgiven, 
In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself. He said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. It is tempting at times to want a return on investment in the things that we give. But the Bible says it is more blessed to give than to receive. As I read this verse, it reminded me of a message that I had listened to last year. In that message, we are encouraged to give, not only in church, but also outside of church. And how does that giving look like? It was a simple matter of, if you go shopping, just add an extra can of beans to your, to your trolley, or an extra loaf of bread, and give it to someone. If you're shopping for clothes, perhaps, add that extra pair of socks, or add that extra whatever it is that you can afford, and give. That is what we are called to do as children of God, is to give. Jesus gave his life for us. Last week Sunday I was also encouraged with the Sunday message, which spoke about courage. And this morning I'd like to encourage you to have the courage to believe in God's word. There's also a song I love listening to. It is called Be Still. And it says, Be Still and know that the Lord is in control. This morning, I want you to be still and know who you are giving to. Be obedient and know who is in control. Be generous and know. Church, will you join me this morning in trusting in God's promises as we give? Thank you. Here I stand, I surrender, I need you now. Hold my heart, now and forever, my soul cries out. Here I stand, I surrender, I need you now. Hold my heart, now and forever. You love my whole heart through Sin has no hold on me Cause 
Good morning everyone, how about you this morning? Uh, today I'm going to have uh, Holy Communion, I will just read uh, two verses from Luke 24, that is verses 30 and 31, it reads as follows, And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it, and break and gave to them and their eyes were opened and they knew him i will stop here uh, it is quite interesting that um, these disciples they journeyed with jesus uh, to uh, a village outside jerusalem and came back without recognizing that they were working with jesus they only recognized when he broke bread it is interesting that breaking of the bread in this case gave the disciples the revelation that they were they were joining or sitting with the Master Himself, Jesus Christ. It is my prayer that today, as we break bread and share the juice, which which represent the blood of Jesus, we will have a revelation of who Jesus is in our lives personally. We pray in Jesus' name. Let's all pray. Father God Almighty, bless uh, these uh, tokens that represent the blood of Jesus and the blood, the blood of Jesus as we break your bread and drink juice which is your blood. Can we have a, a revelation as the, as the church that uh, you died for us you shed our blood, your blood for our, our sins. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Greetings, People's Church, and thank you for joining us on this wonderful Sunday morning. I hope you and your loved ones are still well. And we look forward to those who will be coming back to our in-person service soon. Over the past month or so, I've really fallen in love with the book of Hebrews. And I felt like I was reading a totally different book, I must say. 
that especially if you listened or you watched the transfiguration message at GNC 21 this year and if you have not listened to it or watched it go online go find it it's it's really a life-changing message previously I had the tendency of just focusing on maybe just well-known passages in the book of Hebrews like chapter 11 when it talks about faith or the first principles but when you give yourself time, you realize just how rich the book of Hebrew is and how deep it really goes. And some of the things that I find fascinating about the book is while we know the authors of the 26 other New Testament books, we do not know who wrote the book of Hebrews. And you can say that if you know the author, it's it might be easier to consider a book authoritative, which makes the book of Hebrew very interesting because what it says, its merit is that rich that even when we do not know the author, it's easy to see why this book was included as part of the New Testament scriptures. When we read the book of Hebrews, is you find a common thread throughout the book. The thesis, the major thesis of the book hinges around these three, these three things. is the priesthood, the sacrifice, and the covenant. The, the priesthood, the sacrifice, and the covenant in which when you see, when you read it, you will see that those three things are actually built to last. They are not temporary. And he goes in to compare those things from the, New, the, the Old Testament to what we have now. And those things are not just concepts or ideas. Those three things are embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You will see when you read throughout that all those things, the writer is trying to communicate that they were actually fulfilled by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So, I would urge you to, to just read throughout. There is no way that I'll be able to do justice to all those things, to the whole book, in just this one sermon. So, I would urge you to take your time and go through the book. God, who at various times, in various ways, spoke in time past, to the fathers by the prophets. He or has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a much more excellent name than they. He says, God previously spoke to us throughout history 
but the prophets. But in these last days, he chose to spoke to us. If you look at it, he spoke to us through himself. And the message could not be any more clear that the, the, indeed, as John said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he has this detail referring to, to, to the son. He says, appointed heir of all things or of all things. None of the angels, none of the prophets were ever appointed heir of all things or of all things. None of the prophets or the angels are the express image of God. So he's setting the tone here that Jesus is not at the same level, same level as the angels or prophets. So when, but when we read this now, we, we sort of get it because we, we have the whole background of the, or the whole scriptures to refer to. But if you're a first century Christian and you have known the law all your life, this is not easy to swallow. This is not easy to digest, so to speak. And to be quite honest, even for us sometimes, we, we grapple with this. So the author, in following what he has said, He's about to do something very exciting, something very radical to show how everything indeed was, was, was fulfilled by Jesus, the priesthood, the sacrifice, and the covenant. And he goes to show that Jesus' priesthood, the sacrifice, and the covenant which we are now in through his blood are better than the old. And the word better is not to be misunderstood to mean an upgrade. Because with an upgrade, if you understand it, it's you take the stuff that don't work very well and you improve maybe on the things that work well. What Jesus offers is better because it's complete. He goes to show that what was in the old was not complete, and Jesus came and with what he has done, fulfilled everything. That's why it is better. Now, let's look at what he says about the priesthood. Starting from chapter 7 in verse 11, he says, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not called according to the order of Aaron? So he says, the priesthood of Jesus and that of Aaron are not the same because the priesthood of Aaron needed a succession plan and priests died so they needed to be replaced. And in verse 23, it actually indicates that Jesus' priesthood has no succession plan. It continues forever and it is not changeable. It requires no revision. In chapter 7, verse 26, it says, For such a high priesthood was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, 
separate from sinners and has become higher than the heavens. He says he's not a sinner, but what is interesting is he stood on behalf of sinners. He stood in the gap of sinners. He was the only one who was qualified because he was spotless. And as he has shown in, in chapter 4, even a high priest who is spotless, sinless, the interesting thing is he is not remote. He is not disconnected from us. And in verse 15, he says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. It says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. This is one thing that Jesus as our Savior is able to draw people. A Savior who stripped himself of all titles, of all glory, all majesty, and came down to the earth, walked like we walk, subjected himself to our struggles. When we look at people who occupy esteemed positions, you will see that most of the time they are very disconnected from common people. Even when sometimes they claim to represent those everyday people, they've erected barriers around, around themselves. I'm not saying whether that's wrong or right. It's just an observation. But when you look at Jesus, he flips it around totally. He did not ask us to come up. He came down to us. He made sure that he left no stone unturned. He made sure that there were no barriers between us and him. So we are able to draw closer to him, not hindered by anything. That is our high priest. And second thing, looking at the sacrifice in chapter 7, in verse 27, he says, who, referring to Jesus, does not need daily sacrifices as those high priests to for, offer up sacrifices. It says, when priests offered sacrifice for the people, they had to offer sacrifices for themselves too because they were not sinless. But our high priest did not need to do that because he was spotless. He was totally sinless. And the thing is, he did not need to offer, he did not offer the sacrifice of animals. He offered himself. And the author goes to show just how powerful the blood of Jesus is. In, 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 in chapter 9, he, he asks this question. For if the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He says those animals, the blood of animals had to be spilled every year. If indeed 
They were powerful to take away sin. Why did they have to be offered up all the time? If it, they were powerful, they, had to, they would have been offered once, and that was it. So the, and the blood of animals were not sufficient for future sin. You could not come and say, I'm offering this for my future sin. But the power that is in the blood of Jesus is built to last, is offered once also for future sins, sins that we have not, we have not even committed for generations to come. In chapter 10, verse 12, he says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice, one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down at the right hand of God, from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. It says, he offered one sacrifice and he sat down because his work was complete. In that, that is never said about the blood of animals. The blood of animals never perfected anyone. But the blood of Jesus achieved that for us, achieved perfection. Therefore, we can completely rely on what he has completed through his blood. The third thing, which is the covenant, in chapter 8, verse 7, says, For if the first covenant had been faultless, there is no place, then, sorry, then no place would have been sought for a second. We know that God made a covenant with the children of Israel after they came out of Egypt, before they entered the promised land. He said, if that first covenant was faultless, then why would there be a need for a second? So in the same line, he's still comparing and contrasting that the first was not sufficient, but this one is the one that we now have through the blood of Jesus. In chapter 8, it says, in that, or when he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. In chapter 10, verse 1, he says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with the same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. He says, look, the law which they received in the Old Covenant was not the thing itself. It simply pointed towards something. The law gave an idea, and Paul uses this word, tutor. The law was a tutor, which showed us what perfection looked like, but it could never make us perfect. It's like having a catalog or a menu when you're ordering something that catalog gives you an idea what to expect. But when the actual thing comes, 
the catalog then becomes obsolete. That is the point that is making that when now we are in this new covenant, the old which pointed to this then becomes obsolete. In chapter 10, he says, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. In chapter 7, verse 18, it says, For by one hand, sorry, for on one hand there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. It says the Lord did not and does not make anything perfect, does not perfect anything. Actually, what the law shows, it shows us just how much we miss the mark, how, un, how inadequate our efforts really are. It says, but on the other hand, there is this better hope. Because we are not relying on the outwards. We are not relying on what is written on tablets. The law is now written in our hearts in this covenant. So now, it's, it's now no longer the effort, but relying on what Jesus has already accomplished for us in this covenant which is built to last. The obvious question is, why is the author going through all this trouble to make a case about what Jesus has fulfilled? Why is he going through all this trouble to compare what they had in the Old Testament and now what we have in the completed works of Christ. What is he trying to achieve with his audience? Where, where in their Christian walk were his audience? What we know is what the author, the people that is writing to, were facing hard times, were facing hardships, and some of them were considering dropping this whole discipleship to to Jesus and going back to the law because when tough times show up, sometimes that's when you really find out what you believe. And that is what he's trying to achieve when he's comparing and contrasting. And the other thing, what we know about these people that he's writing to is they had a very deep understanding of the Old Testament, the priesthood, the sacrifice, and the covenant. So when he's putting all this down, they were able to make that connection. And we see him in chapter 4 issuing a very stern warning to them. And I also believe that it is applicable to us. He says, therefore, 
since a promise remains of entering his rest. Let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as them. Them he is referring to those who are about to enter the promised land. But the word which they had did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. He says, it's very much possible that the good news you can, the good news you receive, and he's comparing us who now have this good news of what Jesus has accomplished through his priesthood, his sacrifice, and this new covenant. He says, we have good news, but wait, it is possible that this good news might not benefit us. And just look at what those people were about to enter the promised land. They were promised rest, but that, that was supposed to be good news to them. That rest was supposed to be good news to them, but it did not benefit them. They failed to enter a physical rest which God promised them. And we might fail to enter a spiritual rest. As he says, that rest still remains. But we might fail because lacking faith to enter that rest. And rest might represent all kinds of rest. There's rest from bondage, rest from a lack of peace. But when you filter it down, you will see that the rest is, he's really referring to is rest from self-effort. Rest from no, this rest, resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He says, he continues to say in, in verse 10, he says, for he who has entered his rest, who has entered Jesus' rest, has himself also seized from his works as God did from his. It says, God has seized from his, work, his, his works not because he was tired, but because his work was complete on our behalf. That, that, that work that he did, as he has shown throughout the book of Hebrews, was lacking nothing. The priesthood is forever. The sacrifice was adequate. And the covenant that we now have is totally faultless. Therefore, when we accept him, we, we, we go into that rest and we cease from our work. Our works were never sufficient. That is the point that is trying to make. Why not then accept the completed works of Christ, which he has done on our behalf as our high priest? One of the best invitation, in my view, which may be ever made in the Bible is in Matthew chapter 11. It says, come to me. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, 
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, it's not even a question. I will give you rest. No doubt about it. I will give you rest, but you have to cease from your works. You have to cease from self-effort. And just so that it's not confusing, we need to look at what rest is. Rest, excuse the double negative, rest is not not doing anything. Rest is not being inactive. Rest is an attitude which you have, you do something with. When you're doing something, you can pray worried or you can pray resting. One person can have faith in their prayer and the other can have faith in God who they are praying to. You can think, if I do not pray, nothing will happen. Or you can think, I will express my confidence in God by praying. You can think, if I don't read my Bible, then God is angry with me. Oh, on the other end, you can read your Bible to renew your mind or to align your mind with His you can fast for 40 days thinking that will impress God or that will make you more spiritual. Or you can set time apart to fast and spend time with God. I'm using these extremes just to make a point. It happens to all of us. Every now and then we, we are tempted to smuggle in self-effort thinking maybe the blood of Jesus has not accomplished all of that. Maybe he didn't wash it all out. That's why we need to take seriously what the author is saying here in the book of Hebrews, that when you bring self-effort into the equation, the good news is no longer beneficial to you. Our high priest, then what he has achieved for us is no longer beneficial to us when we want to bring in self-effort. The issue of relying on the finished works of Christ is the center of the Christian experience. In, in, in verse 11 of chapter 4, it says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of the Old Testament, there's that same example of disobedience. And it, it does not sound like rest and diligence go in the same sentence, but that is the point that is making. That is, we should be diligent. We should be diligent in relying on what Jesus has done on our behalf. We should be diligent in making sure that what Jesus did was not just something to be forgotten or something to be added on. What Jesus did for us was complete. We can rely on him as our priesthood. His sacrifice indeed was sufficient. This covenant that we have is totally faultless. Those things are built and made to last. As I close, one of the most interesting parables in my view that Jesus ever told is in 
Luke chapter 18. And the background to this parable is Jesus is speaking about those who trusted in their own righteousness and despised others or looked down on others, those who thought they could bring self-effort or their own righteousness to the table. He says, two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a publican. And the Pharisee prayed in this manner. He stood and praying, saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, adulterers, or even these tax collectors who were standing by. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I possess. But Jesus says, and the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me a sinner. He says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The question this morning is, where is your confidence? Are you at rest in what Jesus has done? Are you putting confidence in what Jesus has done? In what a high priest has achieved for us? Or are you wrestling relying on your self-effort, relying on your own works. I hope this morning that you understand the gravity of what Jesus has done for us, that what he did was once and for all, what he did was built or made to last. It wasn't, it needs nothing added to it. It needs no revision. He finished his works and he sat down because he was complete. Now he's making, he's our mediator now, sitting at the right hand of God. And that is a beautiful picture, that that is what Jesus has achieved for us. And we can rely on what he has completed on our behalf. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that your word is true that we can come to you and find rest for our souls. Rest which is not temporary, Lord. We thank you so much that you know you are able to sympathize with us. You understand what, you go, what we are going through because you went through that yourself. This morning I pray that you would give us rest, you will grant us peace in every situation and circumstances. Thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. What an encouraging message. Thank you for joining us. We hope to see you next week and we hope that this message has blessed you. If you do intend on joining us in person, don't forget to register online. 
We can't wait to see you. Have a blessed week. Goodbye.